Welcome to Brunch with Brent. Uh, joining me today is Stuart Langridge. Stuart, how are you? And thank you so much for joining me. Hello, Brent, and thank you very much for inviting me. Anytime. Some may know you uh, from co-hosting the podcast Bad Voltage. Uh, I think many will recognize your voice. Uh, it's one of a kind. And uh, I know for sure that your laughter is something that always gets to me. So that's appreciated. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit uh, about Bad Voltage. What, what is it? How did it start for you? And where's it going, maybe? Okay. Uh, so Bad Voltage is a technology podcast. Um, the intention is that it's about things that the hosts find interesting. The hosts now are myself, uh, John O'Bacon, who people may have heard of as the, he was a community manager of Ubuntu, then he worked for XPRIZE and GitHub. Now he runs John O'Bacon Consulting and Jeremy Garcia, who runs Linux Questions and has been around forever. He used to work for himself. Um, and the three of us do the podcast once a fortnight. And the intention, as I say, is that it's a general technology focus. It tends to skew a little bit towards the open source uh, end of the universe. But that's mostly because the three of us are quite interested in that area. So you'll hear the word Linux turn up on it more than you might do on, say, the Verge podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but the key point here is that's not what it's about. We occasionally get people who will show up and complain that we're not covering the release of a distribution or something. And we're like, we're not a Linux podcast. We're not an open source podcast. The fact that we came out of that area, I mean, perfect example of someone else who came out of that area. I used to go to the GNOME summits, the Guadec. This is the GNOME user and developer summit, which happens every year. And one of the first people I met at one of those back in 2004, 2005, was a chap called Nat Friedman, who was working on GNOME, and now he's CEO of GitHub. So <laughs> right, <laughs> not everyone who necessarily starts in the free software arena ends up in that place. And having a wide arena, I think, is interesting. It gives us the opportunity to talk about things that affect the technology world from a bigger perspective and things in technology that affect the wider world more generally. One of the nice things about doing Bad Voltage as well is that we get to do live shows. So we'll do a a stage performance, a live performance of the show. Um, we've done those six or seven times now, I think. We've done most of them at scale, the Southern California Linux Expo, which I got back from what, two weeks ago, I think. And we had a, we had an absolute whale of a time. The live show is always brilliant. That's lovely. Yeah. One of the things we've been talking about is um, maybe doing more live shows and shaking up the format a little bit, but um, that's still under discussion, so I'm not going to reveal the discussions just yet. But if you're interested in uh, what we might be doing, then listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> what I appreciate about the show actually is its flexibility in content, uh, because the three of you clearly have experiences and a depth of experience um, in the kind of topics that the Linuxy and open sourcey folk uh, like us tend to appreciate. Um, but some topics that have come up have been, you know, uh, questions like what is privacy mean uh, in the current era 
you know, each perspective has been sort of explored, which I appreciated. It's like, well, the, there's a, you know, the the idealistic side of it, but also the pragmatic side of it. And, and just the discussions that uh, you each had there, I thought was really rich. So uh, thanks for putting that out there. Thank you. I mean, that's obviously the intention behind these things is to at least attempt to look at a problem somewhat pragmatically, somewhat idealistically. I mean, um, in general, I probably end up being the most idealistic of the three of us, but it depends quite dramatically on what the topic is. Jeremy's the most knowledgeable and Jono's the most fervent. But John, I would say he was the most practical. Um, I would say I was the most knowledgeable and I'd be wrong. But <laughs> I think um, that exactly the goal is to attempt to look at big pitch things. I mean, we've done quite a lot of looking at privacy, so we're probably going to move on from that now. But we have spent quite some time looking at various different angles of things like facial recognition and uh big companies gathering our data and stuff like that. And uh, obviously, I have a certain amount of interest in this kind of thing myself. I've spoken at conferences about it and things like that. So it's attempting to take that half a step back and look at the bigger picture, but it might be the bigger picture around something relatively small. One of the shows we did uh, recently was essentially a full show review of – uh, an email client called Superhuman. This was a fascinating episode. Um, it, it turned out even more interesting than I think than I thought it would. I think because it was a review in the New York Review of Books style of review, where you spend the first thirty seconds talking about the product, and then the rest of it essentially talking about something vaguely related to it, in order to give you an excuse to talk about the bigger picture thing. So we segued quite relatively quickly into the bigger picture of email clients in general and whether email is important and user experience and user interface and how Gmail was streets ahead of the competition. And now it isn't, but no one else has really stepped up to take that plate and maybe superhuman are it. Is it a good idea to trust your email to a company like this? So it's all kind of larger thoughts prompted by a particular thing. And again, that was interesting because we had we got some feedback from people saying, why would you spend the whole time talking about a proprietary email client? And we were like, why wouldn't we? It's an interesting product if you're an email power user. Um, Jono certainly loves it to bits. Um, I don't get anywhere near enough email to warrant this kind of thing. But as with everything else, I mean, we reviewed a Kindle once, uh, you know, which was 10 years old at the time. But the whole point is that it's – it's a stepping stone into a larger question. It's very rare that we talk about a thing just for the sake of the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And no product is isolated. It's always in an environment interacting with all sorts of other things. So it, it warrants that exploration, I think. And and that's that's often missed. There is almost nothing I own, which, as you say, I, 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 I use in isolation. There isn't anything like that. Everything has a cultural context, a technological context. Uh, from uh, you, you might think of it as compatibility, but it's not technological compatibility. It's not, are there drivers for this in my Ubuntu kernel? It's more, is it compatible with the way I live the rest of my life? There's no point in buying a device to control your smart home if you have no intention of buying any smart home light bulbs. Right. <laughs> Similarly, there's not a lot of point in buying one smart light bulb for your house because what's the point? 
you know? <laughs> um, so if you've decided to invest yourself in a particular area of technology, you've got to think, does all this stuff fit together? Does it fit in with my life? What am I going to do when new people walk into the house? Um, that kind of thing. So that, I think that cultural context of how does it fit into my life? How does it fit into the larger scheme of technology as a whole? Is this product an example of something which is taking us in a direction that we want to go in or a direction that we don't want to go in? Is anyone else doing it better? That to me is almost more interesting than the thing itself. Which is why spending an episode on a proprietary email service uh, while that seems like you spent the entire episode simply on that product, that's not true at all, right? Um, so there's there's a real value in in exploring kind of what's rubbing shoulders with that email service uh, because obviously it got there somehow, and it's it's necessarily a cultural indicator. That's precisely the plan. I mean, I, certainly I remember when Gmail first came out. Everyone was super duper impressed with it, uh, because it was fast and it basically never got spam wrong and it was easy to use. And that was great. But as far as I can tell since then, since, you know, 2012 or something, it's kind of stagnated. Um, and there's been ample opportunity. Pe people say, well, why don't you use Thunderbird or whatever? Yeah. Okay. But Thunderbird's exactly the same now as it was in 2008. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of space for people to innovate in the way they handle my email. Now, um, this is not about innovating in what email is because companies tend to think, Hey, let's innovate in email by getting rid of all the things that make email good. Um, like the fact that it's free and I can run my own server. But the last big change in the way I think email was handled was Gmail inventing conversations, right? And you forget, if you go back to a non-Gmail way of looking at your mail, you forget that conversations aren't part of how email works. They're a Gmail thing. And still to this day, as far as I can tell, no one's actually caught up with that. And that was nearly 10 years ago. So the idea that someone is going to say, let's find a way of handling email, which is more in tune with the way email works today, I think is really interesting. One of the things that has, one of the accusations, I should say, that's often been leveled at the open source community is that we're tail light chasers, that there's no innovation going on, that all we know how to do is wait till a proprietary product comes along and then clone it. Now, I don't think that's true. Part of the reason I don't think it's true is that every time someone comes up with a new WYSI proprietary thing, someone is always able to point to a half-finished, half-written GTK app from 2006, which did basically what this was talking about and say, see, no, we invented it first, you know? Um, what we are not good at as a community, in my opinion, is actually doing the final mile, right? turning a thing from a project into a product, turning a thing from a proof of concept into something that real people can use. And they can be real people like me. They don't have to be real people like my family, who aren't very technological at all. Um, I've got no problem if they're real people who need a bit of technical knowledge, but I would like to see us have the confidence in our innovations. I mean, places where we do lead the world, if you look at stuff the Linux kernel does with things like containers and so on, um, they said, okay, we think it's a good idea to enable this concept of containers. And they created the cloud, right? <laughs> <laughs> People were doing VMs before, but this stuff didn't really take off until the Linux container stuff really got started. And so 
some people in the kernel team go, we're going to invent these things called containers to enable you to uh, namespace and sandbox a Linux installation on top of another Linux installation, created the cloud, which now dominates the whole technology industry. That's what happens when you get something right, and it's something that happened in open source first. And for everyone who says, I don't understand why YouTube's so interesting, I invented YouTube by sketching the answer on the back of a cigarette packet in 2004. (laughs) The answer is, because the idea of going, I know what I'll do, I'll let people upload video and then download it to their own computers. That's not the revelation. Ideas are not the hard bit. Execution is the hard bit. Delivery is the hard bit. And I'd love to see us doing more of that. I like how you mentioned that final mile, because that's so true. It feels like, well, maybe I'll I'll put a question to you. Do you think that that final mile is such a challenge because of some of the economic uh, realities of open source projects, like creating a, a stereotypical successful business around a project isn't? necessarily in line with open source ideals would you agree with that or what do you think Ooh, now there's a contentious opinion um i i don't think that making money is inimical inimical to open source ideals um i think uh, they are perfectly compatible some of the reason i think and this discussion has come up quite a lot recently the idea about making a linux app rather than making another distribution um what we don't see is a lot of apps coming out and that's disappointing to me at least. And I think some of the reason for that is that that last mile is not very well documented. Hmm. So people don't, people think that, well, that can't be that hard, but actually once you've finished writing an app, which does something, the amount of work it takes to go from there to getting it into someone's hands in a delightful state is just as much work as building the thing was in the first place. So if you say, well, okay, I've written the code, now it's on GitHub, just download it and install it, you've only actually done half the work at that point, right? You've got to sit down and design the icons for it and get them drawn, and you've got to think about the UI and make sure that everything's spaced correctly and everything's laid out correctly, and you've got to make sure that right-to-left text works, and you've got to make sure that you can paste emojis into your app and it doesn't crash, and you've got to give it a good name, and you've got to give it a good strap line, and you've got to upload it to one of two or three different stores, depending on who you go with. And then after you've done all that, you've got to get the word out to people. And marketing's really hard. And our community has a habit of sneering at marketeers. And there's a small amount of truth in this because there are certainly plenty of people, or plenty of products, I should say, which are basically worthless but got to be popular because they had good marketing but and this is important not everything is like that yes you can occasionally make something popular by having a really strong marketing team even if the thing itself doesn't deserve popularity fine or we can sneer at celebrities or dasani water all we like (laughs) but the flip side of that is that building a better mousetrap doesn't work either The fact that you have better technology does not ensure that you will be successful and you do have to do all the other work as well. The fact that the fact is a thing needs to be, or it should be, uh, beautiful and available and viable as well as working. And I very much like to see the focus of the open source community shift to making that kind of thing more possible. 
I wonder if it's because the open source, you know, our open source community is filled with or seemingly filled with generally engineers and that the the slow trickle of people coming to it now perhaps are those who are strong in design and marketing and that maybe there's a void there in the teams and collaborations that is only now getting filled? I, I would certainly agree. Yeah, the history is that way. Um, I've had a whole bunch of really interesting conversations about this with Alan Pope, who um, I know you've already had on, uh, who you've already had brunch with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things which is, uh, is my opinion on this, which not everybody shares, is that, yes, because we came primarily from an engineering background as a community, we tend to overweight engineering concerns and underweight other things. The flip side of that is historically, if you look at people who used Macs, they came out of a very designer-focused community, which meant that you got beautiful apps and all that kind of thing, which is great. But every now and again, you'll see an app which converts Celsius to Fahrenheit, and it's a beautiful app. And someone downloads this app and then runs it on the desktop, and... I think to myself, but that's like one line in a terminal. <laughs> um, now, there are a couple of things here. The first one is, yes, it's one line for someone like me. It's not at all one line for, say, my dad. And that's critically important. There is the accusation, again, leveled at our community, that we tend to be just open a terminal and do everything, and real people can't do this. And that was historically true. Um Unfortunately, it still is true for some parts of our community. I'll give you an example. If I say to someone, hey, install this piece of software. <laughs> so do that by opening Ubuntu Software Center and then searching for the name of it and then clicking search, you know, like real people do. You'll get a bunch of feedback saying, why don't you just tell people to open a terminal and type sudo apt install? Actually, what they'll say is sudo apt get install, which annoys me. Slight diversion. If you're going to give people a kicking to use commands, at least use the up-to-date ones rather than the ones from 2006. <laughs> but anyway, ignore that. I mean, and these days it might be sudo snap install or sudo flatpak install anyway. Um, there is a certain amount of power in the command line stuff. You shouldn't demand that people use it, but equally power users can find this kind of thing uh, more important. To give you an example, um, and this harks back slightly to the superhuman thing we were talking about a moment ago, one of the things that superhuman have done, their email client, is to give you the ability to run almost any command by giving you a little pop-up command palette, they call it. This is very similar to the command palette that you get in Visual Studio Code, for example, the editor or Sublime Text, where any anything the editor is capable of doing is available with a little summonable command palette, which gives you basically a box you can type in to search for a command it can run, which means that the way a bunch of these power user tools have managed to make them more suitable to power users here in 2020 is to put a command line back in. Um, which is, you know, great. But I think it's interesting that there is that value in this stuff. But equally and more importantly, they're power user tools. Right? So they're not necessarily suitable for an ordinary person. But, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, actually. If you asked a whole bunch of people, how do I convert... 71 Fahrenheit to centigrade, 
I think what they do is they'd open a browser and type 71 Fahrenheit centigrade into Google. Yes. And as far as I can tell, that's a command line command, right? <laughs> you get a box to type things into and you and you type commands into it in a particular format and it gives you the answer. I mean, conceptually, that's quite a lot more like a command line than it is like a graphical application, isn't it? Yeah. But why have we not managed to seize that? Why have we, an engineering-led culture, which Google is as well, why do they get credit for doing that, whereas our community are decried for occasionally wanting the same thing? So I'll be interested in your thoughts on that. Very curious juxtaposition there. I love it. Um, I think what Google got right and why someone like me goes to, well, I don't use Google very much, but why we go to search engines to find such simple information like that is that they are a true success in converting a variety of English or any language really into the answer that we're actually looking for. So you don't need to be as precise as you would on, say, a classic command line to get the answer you're looking for. So if you, you know, open a command line for for any regular user, um, it's daunting, I think, for two reasons. One, because you need to be so exact, otherwise the possibility of, you know, screwing something up is quite high. But also that the discoverability in in most terminals is quite awful. Uh, you can't just really play easily to discover what you're looking for, where looking at a search engine, you know, it's very difficult to do anything wrong in a search engine. And yet you can just play and try things until you get it right, which uh, maybe we can learn something from that. I wholeheartedly agree with this to the point where I went back in time and did a talk about this at about 10 different conferences last year. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have a talk with the UX of text and it's about precisely this, the user experience of text interfaces, because two other places where we're seeing uh, textual interfaces get used outside a terminal and a Google search box or a DuckDuckGo search box or start page search box, wherever it is you like. Um, two other places where we see a textual interface used are chatbots on Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or Telegram or Discord or whatever it is you use. And secondly, voice assistants. So uh, Google Home or the Amazon Echo and those things are essentially textual interfaces. Yes, you are speaking out loud to them, but you are doing so with words as opposed to a GUI where you're essentially identifying a picture and clicking on it. You're, you point and grunt like a caveman, right? <laughs> One of the things that led us out of caves and created modern society was language. And the idea that language that text has a user interface and has user experience and needs to be optimized is something which the technology community as a whole, not just open source, but the whole technology community has slighted rather over the last 40 or 50 years. But there are people who are very good at this and they are authors and poets and writers. Um, there's an example in a Neil Stevenson book, uh, Snow Crash, I think it was, about 
there's a, a woman in the book and she gives an example of being at a dinner with her grandmother. And she was, I think, recently pregnant or something along those lines. And just by say, uh, she, she never, never mentioned it at all. And her grandmother, wise old woman, um, picked up on the nuances of her expression and the kinds of things she was saying and deduced what had happened without ever having been told. And it's that kind of nuance that I think is interesting. I'll give you an example. Who's your favorite fiction author? Hmm. The book that hit me the most that comes to mind first in 1984. That, that, and that's a good example. Um, Orwell's a very good example of this to the point where he wrote essays about word choice and how to think about things. But that's the thing. If you think about a book that you've liked, if, if an author is good at what they do, they can use one or two words in a way that puts a whole picture into your head and in a way in which in theory, you could use a synonym for any one of those words, and the sentence would still mean the same thing, but it wouldn't give the same impression. It wouldn't give you that sense of immersion into the world they're describing. I mean, the the holy grail of this kind of thing is Patrick Rothfuss, for people who are fantasy readers like I am, who spends an absurd amount of time uh, over word choice and things like that. Uh, precisely because he's hugely aware of the impressions that each individual word gives. So to give you, I'll give you a Rothfuss example. He's describing in, um, The Wise Man's Fear, which is one of his books, there's a, there's a kind of an underground complex. And there's, uh, a woman who lives in this underground complex and she's a bit weird, <laughs> lives, um, down there on her own, doesn't like talking to people, but she's named all the different areas of this, which is obviously some kind of ancient, abandoned catacomb with bits of machinery in it and so on. <laughs> Sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, mean, I don't think I want to live in it, but then I'm not Aori. She's named all the different rooms and different areas of this complex. And they're all named with things which sound like words, but aren't actually words we know. So a bit is called Downings and a bit is called Cricklet. And one bit is called uh, billows. And each of these things are evocative in a particular way. If I say to you the word cricklet, it's not a word that necessarily means something to you because it's not a word, right? Yeah, just by hearing it, I can approach perhaps what it might look or feel like. Yes. Simply with language, which is exactly, I think, your point. And that is exactly precisely my point. And... And that's the kind of thing that I'd like to see people doing more of, uh, 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 thinking about the user experience of text. Think of the amount of care and attention that goes into a graphic application or a website from a designer. They'll spend days, weeks, considering things like the the flow of the text and how much space there is in between each individual thing and exactly how rounded the corners should be. And those people who are listening to this who have a history in development and working with design will probably be aware of the frustration when you build something and the designer says, but that's not right because it's really important that these things are 14 pixels apart and you've got them 16 pixels apart. And you want to just say, why does it matter? But the point is it does matter because they're the designers and they understand this stuff and developers don't as much. So you take their word for it. But that level of care and attention to detail is just as applicable to text. And that happens in, I think, two ways. The first one is, 
when you have a conversation with a piece of software, whether that's uh, an Amazon Echo or it's a chatbot or it's, you know, the shell in your terminal or it's the Google uh, search box, we need to work out a way of guiding people as developers we need to work out a way of guiding people towards the correct answer without making it their fault that they don't have the correct answer now the terminal it precisely as you say if you get something even a tiny bit wrong it just prints syntax error get lost computer says no chastises you for wanting to learn or or not knowing yeah and and as you say google search box it's almost impossible to do something wrong. Um, back when I was a child here in the UK, you had the, you had eight bit computers. So the Acorn Electron and the Sinclair Spectrum and the Commodore 64 and so on. I know there were different ones in other countries, but the principle back then, you got a machine, you turned it on, it booted immediately because all the stuff was in ROM. And then you had a command line. And that command line was basically a way of entering basic commands. But one of the things that stuck in my head is, I think this was in the manual of Start Programming with the Electron, which is the book you got with the Acorn Electron, which was an extremely noddy 8-bit computer in about 1983. And it said very near the beginning, you can type anything you want into this. You will not damage your computer. Nice. It gave you the the freedom to play, to explore. You think, well, the worst that can happen is that... It just says no. Now, admittedly, it had that very command line experience of just printing syntax error or no or mistake if you did anything other than exactly what you needed to, which is why computers didn't take off as much in the 80s as they have done now. I mean, yes, fine, they were popular then, but now everyone on earth has a computer in their pocket. (laughs) Was not the case in 1984. But I think putting that level of care and attention into how to guide people through a conversation in such a way that they feel empowered the whole time, they feel they're making progress the whole time, but still having them end up where you, the developer, want them to be, that's a real skill. To take a a, a real-world analogy to this, it's like those those of us who've worked in a job will know the experience of managing your manager, right? <laughs> you want your manager to do something, but you can't command them to do it because they're your boss and you aren't. H- how would you guide your manager into ending up at the decision you would like them to make without ever being able to just command it so? And that skill, which some people – um are unaware even exists. Some people are not very good at, and some people are spectacularly brilliant at. (laughs) That skill is one of the skills that the developers of a user interface need, and especially a textual user interface, whether that's the Google search box or Amazon Echo. or You know, I'm carefully saying Amazon Echo and not the name of it, because if I say the name of it, then my one will wake up. <laughs> and I don't want it to. We don't want that. <laughs> we do not. It's the skill of very gently nudging users into their own perceived successful uh, outcome, even if you don't know what that outcome is going to be at the onset, which is no small thing. Imagine a butler in Victorian England or um, a lieutenant in the army, a lieutenant, sorry. Are you? 
Oh, can I know, right? So are you lieutenant or lieutenant? Canadian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I've heard both. Uh, some military folk is, is lieutenant, but I've heard lieutenant repeatedly. So I think, you know, we can't decide whether we're British or, or American. <laughs> <laughs> I shall strike one tiny blow for the diminishing island of Albion and say lieutenant for now, but feel free to correct it in your heads, Americans. <laughs> So imagine the skill of a lieutenant not being able to say, no, sir, that's a terrible idea. There's a way of saying, okay, sir, which gives the impression you really shouldn't do this, sir, without actually saying so. And that that sort of vibe, that sort of skill, I think, is really important. So careful word choice, understanding how to manage your manager, because in this environment, your Amazon Echo or the Facebook chatbot that you're talking to to order dinner or pay your taxes or whatever, it's operating as essentially a butler, a personal assistant, something which is attempting to guide you into, as you said, to the destination that you want to reach. And this feels to me like a skill that we, the open source community, ought to be all right at because we've always been believers in the power of text. We have, as a community, up until relatively recently, spent all our time sneering at the idea of people who thought the text was a bad thing. (laughs) So maybe this is something where we could, as a community, get out ahead of this. But it does require us to let go of this idea that you've either got it right or you need to learn more. The bash command line, not a friendly user interface, exactly as you said. And yet the default in many areas. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got people working on um, the graphical UI and so on. And I think a lot of the, or at least a decent proportion of the accusations leveled at our desktops that that, that you spend all your time opening a terminal, they are not the truth. They're being leveled as by people who've not actually sat down and used a modern, used uh, Ubuntu, for example, or elementary or whatever it is you prefer. But I'd like to see us be better at things. And And one of the areas where I do think we ought to be able to steal a march on this is with something like uh, the Echo, or with chatbots, things like that, with textual interfaces, at least partially because we're not attempting to overcome a massive entrenched victory on someone else's part. Getting Making the Linux desktop be popular, even if it was literally the best thing that had ever existed, will be hard because we're at 2%, and the rest of the market is 98%. Whereas... The Echo or Google Home is essentially un, untouched ground. It's there's there's no one there with any entrenched advantage other than Amazon and Google themselves, of course. And I'm not talking about building an alternative to the Echo. I'm talking about building on the Echo as a platform. So this is not what Microsoft are doing. Microsoft are um, working away at this, and I have one on my desk, and well done to them. But the thing that they don't have and Amazon do have is a billion customers already. But I see no reason why we can't use existing platforms and then build software on top of them a way that really exhibits the skills that we as a community should have at 
I mean, think about it this way, right? Um, a decent textual interface needs to be good at two things. Doing text and being the underdog and getting stuff done anyway. And if there's anything more suited to the Linux community, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> seems absolutely ideal. Well, perhaps what you're saying is we've been good at this and yet we've been holding on to old ideals around uh, these technologies. And so we've got to progress and move on and use those skills and improve them to be more appropriate for, moder for modern times. This is um, another one of my people don't necessarily agree with this thought, but I am of the opinion that our community's worst enemy is itself. There is a reasonable proportion of the community who are, first of all, louder than everybody else, but secondly, consider it more important that their rivals in open source lose than the open source as a whole wins. There are people out there who would say um, they would they would rather see open source not become a success if that meant that Ubuntu were the people who'd done it. They'd rather say, no, we'd rather open source wasn't a success than have it be successful through a distribution or a piece of software or a person who they personally don't like. Wow. And I find it infuriating. I mean, we're not alone in this. Um, other people who feel like this are, for example, phone manufacturers or phone um, carriers, right? If you are T-Mobile apparently doing something which means that you win and Vodafone wins and Sprint wins and AT&T wins is not that important. You, you're okay with doing things where T-Mobile wins and everyone else loses. <laughs> Give you another example. Think about storage formats. You know how Sony every five minutes would bring out a brand new format, which is incompatible with everything else. <laughs> and that's because Businesses tend to have this thought where they go, we've invented a new thing. We'd like it to be the massively dominant monopolistic thing in whatever field it's in, because then everyone on earth buys one and we get a dollar every time they do that. And it normally takes about five years for the four or five different competitors in that market to say, you know what, maybe we should start cooperating after all. And why people don't learn the lesson from this and start cooperating on day one, because they're going to eventually anyway, escapes me, but they don't. So this is something which I think our community is guilty of as well, that for everyone who says, okay, let's build a great new graphical interface, there were people saying, oh, but that's because you, you hate the command line or... um. Uh, why are you doing this in GTK? It's the worst. Or why are we not building this in Rust? Or um, GNOME Shell uses JavaScript or KDE's got too many clocks or whatever. And it's just, I mean, I hate to sound trite about this, but if you can't find anything nice to say, don't say anything. Sounds like something one's grandmother might say, but there's a certain amount of truth in it. Not necessarily because your objection isn't viable, but because it degrades the viability of open source as a whole in the eyes of the mainstream. Uh, it's, a, it's a negative externality. So for every time that someone in open source attempts to do something outreaching and they're clawed down by other people in open source, people in the outside world don't look at this and go, great, there's a good Darwinian process going on there and I'll definitely choose whichever one wins. They just go... <laughs> 
the hell is this? Every time one of these open source things comes up, it just seems to be an enormous bun fight. <laughs> I just don't want to be involved in that. And then they go and buy Windows 10. <laughs> so, because, I mean, yeah, Microsoft might have a bunch of problems, but what they don't do is fight with themselves about which one of their computers you should buy. <laughs> so, I think... Uh, for for for, the, for those people who've read um, Unseen Academicals by Terry Pratchett, this is a crab bucket thing, where one cra- if you've got a bucket full of crabs and one crab tries to crawl out of the bucket, the other crabs will all pull it down. What a terrible situation, really. I know. It's, uh, it's uh, as far as I can tell, the success we have achieved, we have achieved despite ourselves, or at least despite some of our community. And it makes me sad because, I mean, I've, well, I was about to say, I've dedicated my life to open source, which which sounds way more like I want to be a martyr than I actually am. And I haven't, because at least some of my life is dedicated to getting paid, which comes back to a point you made earlier. But um, I've certainly spent a lot of my life building, releasing, working with open source software. I worked for Canonical for five years. Um, I release software to this day. I constantly agitate for the web to be, to be and remain open. So... I have a certain amount of skin in this game, right? And I'd very much like to see us and our mindset become more successful. But I'd like to see it become more successful along with the ideals behind it. I mean, if you look at the the technology world outside strictly open source things, most of it is open source. We won that battle, you know, the... um. If you, if you go looking for programmers now, they're all doing JavaScript, right? JavaScript itself is open source. NPM, um, is the, uh, the library of JavaScript libraries and the repository of JavaScript libraries. And that's all open source. People routinely publish their source code on GitHub. We are now in a world which was unimaginable 20 years ago, where most of the software you need to use most of the time, you could see the source code if you wanted to. That's great. We won, you know, but no one seems to be taking a victory lap about that because the last 10% isn't done. Are you saying that perhaps many of us, and perhaps I should say those that are causing us issues in our own community, are fighting a battle that we've already won? So it's an outdated mission or effort to try to try to win that over? Some people are. Um, not that many, but there's still enough of them. The sort of people who still put a dollar sign in the word Microsoft yeah. are fighting a battle that um, was over years ago. I mean, I don't know whether we won or we lost. It's like asking who won the Cold War, right? Um, nobody did. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, either nobody did or everybody did. <laughs> uh, so uh, difficult question to answer. But the point is, it doesn't matter. Stop litigating the old battles. So... Yes. Uh, well, since I mentioned Microsoft, let's take them as an example. They now own GitHub, uh, they, uh, who now own NPM as of about two days ago. So being topical, they also produce VS Code, which came from nowhere to be, as far as I can tell, the most popular editor around. They, they're doing a lot of open source stuff more generally. Azure has become quite dominant and a lot of the work they're doing there is open. And there are certainly reasons to take a step back and say, maybe we shouldn't just stick all our eggs in one basket, especially a basket with the Microsoft logo on it. But I think that's different from just flat up mistrusting them 
the whole time without any way of them proving things to be different. If you if you find someone who says, oh, uh, Microsoft shouldn't have all this stuff because they're Microsoft and they embrace, extend and extinguish and they think Linux is a cancer. You say, well, okay, they did 18 years ago. I get that, right? What could they do today to prove they're no longer like that? And if the answer is nothing, then you're not making a rational argument. If the answer is something, then, I mean, for me... It took a while to change this, and I still don't fully trust their company. And say, well, I don't fully trust Apple, or I don't fully trust Google. You said yourself, you don't use Google very much because you've presumably taken a stand on this front, and that's cool. But there are still products they do that I find useful. There are moves they make that I'm prepared to treat with an open mind. And if there is a list of things that would convince that what Microsoft are doing is becoming a better company, I'm sure that some of the things on that list have already been ticked off. Yeah. Well, at least, at least one would hope so. I agree completely. And what more could they do? You know, I, I think they have been fairly good stewards of open source in the last few years. And I don't know... If you could come up with a reasonable list, and I'd love to hear it if there is one, but a reasonable list of what they could do better uh, if you kind of look at it from a, an objective perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think the key word there is reasonable because there'll be some people who go, okay, thing number one on the list, open source windows. But what would that give? That's the question. Yeah, I mean, it helped wind people quite a lot, I imagine. But <laughs> And there certainly are a whole bunch of things that the company as a whole do, which I don't particularly like to this day and um microsoft is a very big church right and and certainly some parts of the business have moved in our direction quite a lot more than others um try and uh get open source stuff working on the xbox for example okay <laughs> you know uh when windows phone was around uh, attempting to get anybody to even tell you how to send things to it by USB was close to impossible. But at least there are some parts of the business who are doing that. And what I want to see is culture change. But I think there is some value in our community deciding what it is they want to stand for. Because if what you want to stand for is that you won't work with anything unless it's all completely open source and you don't like the phone you've got because it has a non-free firmware to run the baseband control or whatever, then okay, you're making a stand for that and that's great. But it's fundamentally incompatible with being mainstream. And if you're okay with that, then I'm fine with that too. But if someone is interested in getting into the mainstream, stop throwing stones at them. Because they're pursuing a different goal. And both are honourable. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no problem with doing either of them. But it feels like... I don't know, what does it feel like? Um, it's like seeing that the people next door are cooking a curry and then shouting at them because they're not cooking uh, uh, Chinese food or fish and chips. And you say, <laughs> well, well then there's not one that's any better than any other. I just happened to fancy that this evening. That's what I wanted. The fact that you happen to prefer this other food, that, I mean, that almost captures the absurdity of it to my mind, that there's criticism because they're failing to meet up to goals that the person doing it doesn't have in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's taking someone else's 
project, uh, ignoring perhaps their intentions for that project, and then and then throwing it into your own system with your own uh, objectives and seeing how it doesn't align. Uh, but that's completely unfair because it was never designed to align with your objectives. It was designed to align with theirs. Yeah, absolutely correct. I completely agree with that. So, uh, Stuart, I would say typically I spend the first part of this conversation uh, getting to know you a little bit, but we took a single topic and extrapolated it in about 20 different fascinating angles. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, thank you for that. To give some transparency in my process a little bit, I usually have this little page in front of me. Uh, I talked with with Chris on his podcast, the Chris Last Cast, a bit about my process. But I just have a page here that I write some notes on for us to maybe dive into during the conversation. And I've crossed off exactly one <laughs> out of a list of maybe <laughs> twenty. <laughs> and uh, but I loved all of those directions that we went in. I think. I'm going to need to definitely have you on a few other times to check off some more items on this list. I'm I'm fine with that. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I will put a question to you and maybe it will hit on some points that we discussed here. Maybe maybe it'll even be a manifesto of sorts, but um is there something that you want to put out to the community? Something you want them to think about? Something you want them to try or go see or put their energy into? Uh, I, I have been thinking about this a bit. <laughs> Perhaps you have a list. <laughs> well, well I, I kind of do have a list. But I think, to be honest with you, the um, importance of any list I might have is probably obviated at the moment by the fact that the world is in a massive crisis. And one of the things I've seen uh, I've been looking into recently and hearing people talk about is the number of people who are going to end up disenfranchised and suffering by the fact that we have a world in lockdown through essentially no fault of their own. I mean, and I I have to put up my hand and declare a certain amount of self-interest here. I work for myself, right? We are currently in a position where because everything's very uncertain and everyone's very worried and no one really knows what's going on, there aren't that many people who are saying, you know what we should do? Start this new project that that man language was pitching for. But there are an awful lot of people in my position who are going to increasingly find it difficult to find work and so on. I mean, I um, I have the advantage that uh, I do a few different things. So I, I consult and CTO kind of thing, but I also do development work and I also write for a living. So I'm shading myself more towards the writing end of things for the moment because that's easier to convince people that – uh, you want me to write about this thing for you. Here it is. But there are there are a lot of people, both in our community and out there in the world, who run a restaurant or um, or who run a pub or who run a flower shop, who are going to struggle an awful lot. I don't think anyone knows how long this whole coronavirus crisis is going to go on, but the bite is really going to start to set in. We're currently about, well, it depends on where you are in the world, but here in the UK, things went from, oh, blimey, I wonder if the coronavirus is going to be a problem to, oh my goodness, no one leaves the house in the space of about three days. And that was last weekend. So we're currently about four days into this and it might last months. So Basically, what I'd like to ask people to do is kind of, you know, be kind 
we as a community, um, we have a reasonably high proportion of people who work on their own or live on their own, who whose primary contact with people is maybe over the internet. Uh, we have a reasonably high proportion of people who are introverted, uh, who maybe feel more anxious than others. And w- it would be lovely to see the depths of love that I've experienced within our community actually coming out in this fashion. Because for all that I complained about loud, vocal, complainy elements of our community earlier, most of it's lovely. You know, I mean, I I wouldn't have spent 20, 25 years doing this stuff if it wasn't for the warm embrace of the community. And one of the things that we are good at, in theory at least, is pulling together when there are problems, you know, having people's back. And I'd like to see people thinking of ways to make that happen. So, um, a small example, did you see the thing about the um, 3D printed uh, respirator valves in Italy? No, but tell me more. I'm I'm very curious. So um, they are having difficulty getting enough respirators. Uh, I, and I don't understand the medical details here, so if I'm explaining this slightly wrong, cut me some slack, medical engineers. But they need more respirators for people in hospital, and they didn't have enough. And one of the things they were short on is a particular kind of a valve. So a couple of um, people from uh, what, well, as far as I can tell, is the local maker space took a 3d printer into hospital and then measured one of the valves they already had and then 3d printed a replica and went here you go try it out and it worked and so now the hospital's got loads of valves now there are there are a bunch of legal issues around this and you know the apparently the people who make the valves are suing them for it which we're not going to get into and obviously this is a temporary stopgap and the people who make the the real things, uh, you know, are probably making them to high tolerances and they last and they'll last 10 years rather than a 3D printed one, which will last a week. But equally, probably a good idea <laughs> to have a shed load of respirator valves more than you need, even if they do only last a week because we can 3D print more. And that kind of thing, I think, is something where just cutting through the red tape and being direct a direct person-to-person connection we're good at interoperating with people over the internet we're good at seeing places for technology to help humanity and we talk a big game about how that's what open source is good at and it's what proprietary companies are not good at because all they want is money so this i think is our chance to put it into practice so look at how your software can help people or how you might build software that could help people Check out the members of our community who might need your help, who might not want to reach out, but would really appreciate just a a note saying, hey, everything okay? You know, I haven't heard from you for a couple of days. Just want to make sure you stay connected. This is a chance, I think, to demonstrate that we're decent people, that the underlying ethos of our community about supporting everyone, about making sure that everyone is included. This is our chance to do it for real. And frankly, the world needs it. So um, much as I'd like to say, well, here's this bit of software I've written, you should all go and download it. Um, I think 
there are more important things on everyone's minds, and now is maybe the time to put those into practice. I think you're right. It's our time to shine. Uh, so I, I will put something out there. If if anyone wants to reach out to me and say hi at any point, please do. You can find me either in the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group, which I'll link to. You can find me on Twitter, which I'll also link to. And, and just say hi if you want to have a five-minute conversation or something like that. I'm going to, that's my little gift out there in the world. Stuart, do you have a place where people can reach you or a place where people can uh, find a community around bad voltage or otherwise? Certainly. First of all, I will say exactly the same thing um, uh, that Brent did. That, um, if you just want to chat to me, check in. That's fine. Um, just give me a shout. No problem. Places you can find me, Bad Voltage is at badvoltage.org. And you can get the podcast there. Cool. Download it, listen to it. You'll like it. Me, personally, the probably the best couple of places to get hold of me are either on Twitter, where I'm at S-I-L, Sugar Indigo Lima. Um, this is the advantage. I think popped up, I think today or yesterday, saying it was my 13th anniversary on Twitter, which is rather disturbing. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and then the other way of getting hold of, or all the other ways of getting hold of me are via my website, which is cryogenics.org. K-R-Y-O-G-E-N-I-X dot org. Um, there are about a million different contact details there. I write things there. You can get a, um, talks that I've done and things that I've written and work that I've done and people I've worked with and things like that are all there. But yeah, if you want to get hold of me quickly, Twitter is the way. Um, if you want to get hold of me uh, more detailed, then my email address is on my website. I love email. Send me email. <laughs> <laughs> I hang out in a few Telegram channels, but Twitter's probably a better way. Great. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for your time. And as promised, I think you and I are going to have to do this again to fill out some extra details. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I am more than happy to come back on and use another hour and knock another one thing off your list. I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Looking forward to it.